Amen. Happy Easter. Um, thank you for joining us. And he is risen. He is risen indeed. Uh, you know, I really love Easter. Easter is a, it's kind of an excuse, you know, like to get a brand new Aloha shirt uh, <laughs> where you ask your wife, hey, could you uh, go to Macy's, pick me up a new Aloha shirt for our family pictures. And, you know, you can kind of dress up as a family. Um, all the ladies, you can get your hair did, right? The kids get a cute little outfit, matching outfits. You guys can take family pictures and update your Instagram or Facebook picture. Um, there's, there's Easter brunch, there's Easter egg hunts, um, and candy. But more than that, I really love how Easter is really about victory. Easter is about victory. Uh, we just celebrated Good Friday uh, the other day. And Good Friday, Jesus died for all the sins of humanity. It's a sobering death. Uh, it looked like death and the grave one. It was a Friday, but Sundays are coming. And really, Resurrection Sunday and Easter Sunday, it's about victory and hope. Uh, victory that death does not have the final say that sin and Satan do not have the last word. The enemy does not win, but love is alive and victory is here in the name of Jesus. And so this morning, I want to talk to us about uh, amazing grace and how God's amazing grace, specifically His divine grace, is amazing. And we're going to go through uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 12, this Easter Sunday and talking about victory and a life of meaning and depth and purpose. Uh, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 to 12. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present Age. This is the word of the Lord. So, Father, we walk in the newness of life that is in you, Jesus. Lord, oftentimes we, we don't realize, Lord, uh, that resurrection started with a funeral. That when you're buried, oh Lord God, sometimes we don't appreciate the good news unless we know the bad news. Lord, that every... A uh, miracle first started off with a problem. Every healing first started off with sickness. And every redemption started off with failure. And so, Lord, I just pray today that out of your death, Lord, that you would bring forth new life in us. Out of our brokenness and our woundedness, Lord, that you would be, be able to bring life and life eternal through your resurrection power through your Holy Spirit. So Lord, I pray that you make your words come alive in each one of us. We thank you that you're the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, if there's one constant, consistent accusation against Christians, you know, especially, you know, during Easter time, can you guess what it is? H-I-P-O- C-R-I-T-E-S, that Christians were often branded or were often label, labeled and called as hypocrites, right? Um, I think Mahatma um, Gandhi uh, said it best where he's, he expresses sentiments towards Christians and he says, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. 
Your Christians are so unlike Christ. Wow, your Christians are so unlike Christ. Well, well, Jesus is loving and so, so many times his followers are unloving where Jesus is full of truth, where oftentimes Christians, we live in lies and deception, where, where Jesus is full of grace, we're filled with law and, and self-righteousness. Well, um, Craig Rochelle, uh, who's a pastor out, I believe, in Oklahoma, out of Life Church, he wrote a provocative book talking about, you know, why Christians are hypocrite, but he called the book uh, The Christian Atheist. The Christian Atheist, which the, the essence or the, the theory of his book is this, all right? That we believe in God, but we live in such a way that he doesn't exist. Christian, we believe in God, but at the same time, we are atheist. We, believe, we live as though God doesn't exist. And this provocative book, and it's an oxymoron, okay? Uh, which are two, it's a figure of speech where two opposites are put together to create an effect. For example, something like a jumbo, jumbo shrimp. Opposites, how could something be jumbo and be a shrimp at the same time? Opposite, but it has an effect. Or people tell you, act naturally. You're supposed to act, but do it naturally. How does that work? Uh, or it's uh, open secret. Or that's the larger half. If it's a half, how could it be larger? Or people would say, oh, um, oh, you're seriously funny. How could you be funny and be serious at the same time? Or there was a deafening silence, right? Or if we want to contextualize that, it would be like a uh, Filipino non-dancer, a Filipino that can't dance, which is me. Or a uh, Filipino uh, who can't sing, which is me. Or a Filipino who's not a nurse, which is me, <laughs> right? Oxymorons. But anyways, um, all that to say is that we come to think of, you know, Christian atheists. Um, there's a, dis it's a disparity. I, let me repeat that. It's more than the disparity or discrepancy, but it is really an antithesis or a complete opposite between belief and behavior. We believe certain things, but we hate, behave a certain way. Or between orthodoxy, which is right belief, or orthopraxy, which is right practice. Between faith and lifestyle, between what you believe and how you live your life. Well, in our text this morning, in Titus chapter 2, 11, uh, Paul tells everybody, all generations, men, women, young and old, he tells them that we're all to live godly lives in Christ Jesus. There, there's no oxymoron. There's no discrepancy. There's no antithesis between what, believe, what we believe and how we behave and our faith and our lifestyle. He says, all the older men, you're to be self-controlled, worthy of respect. In verse 11, all the women, older women, you're to honor God. You're not to be slanders. You're to disciple the younger women. You're to love your husbands, be pure. So it's none of this like, hey, uh, you're only one, young ones and you got to sow your wild oats. It's, or do what I say, don't do what I do. It's none of that. He says, every stage of life, we need to live in unison, there's not to be an incongruency of how we, 
what we believe and how we live our lives. In other words, our talk must match, uh, our, our walk rather, must, must match our talk. All right. And so in Titus 2.11, uh, he gives us the reason why. It says, for the grace of God has appeared that brings salvation to all people. It's because of God's grace. Why should we be different? Why should we not be Christian atheists, but we should just be Christians? It's because God's grace has appeared, this divine grace, this Easter. So I have uh, two main points for us uh, this morning. Would you write this down? Number one is that divine grace saves you. Divine grace saves you. Look at verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. First thing to note is that divine grace, this charis, this unmerited favor. Uh, one theologian, I've heard him explain that grace, yes, it's something that you, uh, you get, but you don't deserve or you don't earn it. But grace is something that God does for you because you couldn't do it for yourself. That is grace. And the reason why we're to live godly lives is because grace has appeared. The word appear there is the Greek word epiphane, right? Which is like a sudden striking realization. Like, like, oh, I had an epiphany last night, right? Uh, you know, Renee and I were going to be married, uh, I think going to be 18 years uh, this coming October. And uh when Renee and I first knew each other, we knew each other as friends. You know, um, she, she, Renee was uh, my brother's friend first, my older brother's friend in Bible college, and we started hanging out, talking story. Anyways, we started developing a good friendship, and, and we're just good friends, very uh, platonic relationship. And then uh, this one time, Renee helped me. Um, uh, I was already the youth pastor at that time, and uh, I was a pastor's kid, and so everybody, you know, I was like the chosen one. Everybody was, oh, you're, pre you're destined to be the next pastor of the church because my dad was a pastor. And so anyways, and uh, people always looked up to me, oh, you know, the PK is a pastor's kid. And then we went through Bible college. It was my junior year. And I just preached a youth service and we dropped Renee off at home. Uh, she, Renee dropped me off. And then she's like, hey, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm just struggling with my call. And if I'm really called to be a, a pastor, you know, if I'm just doing this to follow my dad's footsteps or if I'm really following the Lord, you know. And, and she goes, hey, let me pray for you. And she prayed for me, you know. And, and this was the first time where an actual, like a, a girl, like prayed for me, like a peer. And, and as soon as she was done praying, I walked off and we said goodbye. And then we're still friends. And then I had an epiphany, like, man, she could be the type of girl that I could marry for the rest of my life. I had an epiphany, like a sudden realization, like it came out of nowhere. Out of darkness, there was light. Um, between your books, between um, Malachi, which is the last book of the Bible in the Old Testament, to the New Testament of Matthew, the intertestament between old and new, there was 500 years of silence, which meant that nobody, that God did not raise a prophet, that God did not appear, reveal himself in visions and dreams. It was a period of silence. They call it the silent period or, or the intertestamental period where there was no prophet that God raised and God used. And 
It wasn't until John the Baptist saw Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then the grace of Jesus, it appeared out of nowhere. Where for 30 years, Jesus lived in obscurity and he was just living behind the scenes, developing his character, walking, abiding in the Father. And then as soon as he gets baptized, right? As soon as he gets baptized, then he, he does his, goes and does his ministry. And that's amazing that this God's grace has appeared. You know, Romans chapter 5 or 6 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us as sinners. Right? That God's grace has appeared, but God's grace, divine grace, it saves you. Second thing to note is not, not only has God's grace appeared, but it has saved us. Grace saves. I cannot save myself. I cannot heal myself. I cannot redeem myself. God had to do it for me. I couldn't bring myself to God. God brought himself to me by giving me his son, Jesus Christ. God drew me to himself through Christ. And the word save there is the Greek word sozo, which means wholeness, right? It's almost, it has the idea of um, like an integer, right? Remember math? Integer is not a fraction, it, but it's a whole number. And God's grace has appeared, but it has brought wholeness to us. You see, Jesus just didn't save your soul. He didn't just rescue you and me from eternal separation, but He brings wholeness to mind, to body, to soul, and to our spirit. God brings wholeness to every aspect of our being. You see, God's grace, you guys, it's not just like fire insurance to escape from hell. God's grace is not like, oh, this is my get out of hell card. I don't want to go to hell. But really, God's grace, listen, it gives meaning. It gives purpose. It, give, it gives substance and depth to our existence now. You know, this week is a culmination of Holy Week, right? And how it started with Palm Sunday last week to uh, Maundy, uh, Thursday and Good Friday to Silent Saturday and now to Resurrection Sunday. But did you notice that during the Holy Week, G Jesus just doesn't go into Jerusalem and he just dies on the cross? In between, from Palm Sunday to Resurrection Sunday, or Palm Sunday to Good Friday to Resurrection Sunday, Jesus confronts corruption and hypocrisy. He establishes social justice in the community. Jesus, he confronts, he overturns tables, and he confronts greed and covetousness in the soul. Jesus, He heals the blind. He heals the sick. He brings wholeness to mind, body, soul, and to spirit. Jesus, He washes the disciples' feet. He set an example of what it means to, to live a life of servitude. The just, Jesus just didn't die and, okay, you're saved. Okay, you guys can go to heaven. It's like, no. There was an efficacious effect a pragmatic a practical effect how how his life 
and the fact that he saves, it just doesn't save our souls, but our mind, our body, our emotions, our history, our marriages, our, our relationship with our parents, our relationship with our bosses, our relationship to our neighbor. Everything changes because Jesus brings wholeness. In other words, the kingdom of God isn't just about a ticket to heaven. It's about bringing human flourishing. It's what God had designed in the Garden of Eden. So we need to have a paradigm shift, church, because of divine grace has appeared, because the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this epiphane, this appearance of Jesus in between darkness and silence and judgment, God's grace has appeared where there's so much evil and sin and injustice in the world. Sometimes as Christians, we're like, oh man, I can't wait to go to heaven. I can't wait for to go up and to live in heaven and live in the kingdom of God. But because Jesus' grace has appeared, it saves us. It's now about Jesus, you saved me and you brought wholeness and you brought heaven down to earth. And now we live in the kingdom of God and there's wholeness and flourishing and thriving in the kingdom of God. That's what salvation means. Secondly, or actually before we do that, um, Paul, he actually elaborates what it means to be saved in Titus chapter 3. Look at Titus chapter 3 verses 3 to 5. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And there's this idea again, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, God saves us. God rescued. God, He ransomed. He took, Jesus took our place on the cross to die the death that we deserve, but He was resurrected so that we could have victory and substance and we could thrive and flourish here on earth now. May I encourage you? Think about it. Just rewind imaginary remote control, rewind the tape of your life before Christ. I think for most of us, or I would say all of us, it probably resembles Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 5, that our life at one time, it was marked by foolishness. Foolishness. Do you guys catch that? Psalm says, the fool had said in his heart, there is no God, where we lived for ourselves, where we thought we were the masters of our own uh, destiny, that we thought we could find happiness and contentment and money and stuff in our career, in a college degree, in wealth, in getting uh, a nice car. How foolish to think that way. That money can bring you joy. It can bring temporary happiness just like sin can, but it won't bring you everlasting joy and fulfillment. Think about a life of disobedience that uh, before Christ came, uh, we had a little rebellious streak in each one of us. We had a rebellious disposition. Um, it says deception, that it's about me, myself, and I. 
that I am the master of my own destiny, that I am the center of the universe. It's about, about what I want, when I want, how I want it. It's all about me. But when Christ came, I'm not God, Jesus is God. And I now die to myself of my old ways. It says we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and, and pleasures that we were completely, before the grace of God appeared and saved us, we were completely enslaved and mastered and controlled by sin in our life. Like we just couldn't help ourselves. That someone, if someone were to give us a stink eye or someone uh, were to talk, uh, stink about us, that we would react right away. Oh, you say that to me? Who do you think you're talking to, right? Or um, we would, when someone did us wrong, oh, you're dead to me. That there is no forgiveness, that we we're controlled, enslaved by sin. We had no choice but to sin. When sin came knocking at the door, we would open, yes, who is it? Like we had no choice but to sin. We only had a sinful nature. But when Christ came, He saved us. He brought wholeness. He gave us a new heart. Right? Joel chapter 2, verse 8, 2 Corinthians 15, 7, that we are a new creation. He gave us a heart before we all had a rebellious heart, a heart of stone that we were resistant to God. Now we have a heart of flesh. Now we have the spirit man within us. We have the Holy Spirit. And we have a choice to say no to sin. Malice and envy, that we were full of hatred and unforgiveness and bitterness. And I love verse 4, it says, But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. Amazing grace. Like everything changed when Jesus came. Things will never be the same. I will never be the same. You will never be the same. That we are forever changed. That we have a new heart. We have a new desire. We have new ambitions. We have new purpose. We have a new... Um, just goal in life to follow Jesus. And if you think about it, if God's grace didn't appear to save us from foolishness and deception and enslavement, then we would still walk in that. We, would, we could say, eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow we're going to die anyways. But as it is, God saves us. Number two is that divine grace mentors you. Look at verse 12. B, it says, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Do you guys catch that? That God's grace, not only has He saved us, not only has it appeared, but what else? It teaches us how to say no. God mentored Jesus, His grace, His Holy Spirit, he mentors us. You know, one of the biggest keys for success in all of life, on all areas of life, is having mentors. Mentors to teach you. In your career, you know, you, if you're an electrician, if you start off as an apprentice, then you become a journeyman, then you become a master electrician. At first, when you come as an apprentice, you need, you need mentors in your life to show you, to teach you the right way to do it, teach you the work ethic, Right? If you're a realtor, if you're a pastor, if you're a teacher, 
if you're a pilot, if you're a doctor, a nurse, an anesthesiologist, you first need um, to shadow and to be mentored. And someone needs to teach you and guide you. As parents, when you become new parents, you don't know what to do. You didn't know about sleep training. And then you have other parents that kind of mentored you. You need to sleep train your kids. Either you train your kids or your, kid, tr your kids will train you. Um, in sports, you come in as a rookie. You need mentors in your life to show you. Like the Mandalorian, this is the way. To show you the way of how to do things. Uh, Bobby Clinton in his book on... Uh, leadership emergence or the emergency, emergency leadership emergence theory he talks about leadership constellation that for us to be leaders we need to have upward mentoring people that are above us or ahead of us or advanced then he talked about lateral mentoring those on the inside and those who are on outside and then he talked about downward mentoring so having a mentor in your life Help will help you navigate, will give you wisdom, best practices, and pitfalls that will exponentially help you succeed in life. And Jesus, not only has He saved you, not only has He appeared, but He teaches you how to live. And the first thing that Jesus does is He teaches us how to say no. When you receive Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life, your attitudes changed, your heart changed, your nature has changed. So instead of renouncing and like, oh, you fight sin, it's like, no, all you have to say, I love how the NIV says it, the NRSV and the NASV, it says denounce or renounce, but the NIV says, hey, just say no to sin. God's grace teaches you how to say no. And there's three areas, and we'll close with this, of uh, how God's grace teaches us how to live. The first area is self, which is inward. And when God's grace teaches us, we must strive for the fierce fruit of self-control. Look at 12b, it says, it teaches us to live self-controlled life. Self-control. I love that. Because it's so easy for us to look at other people first before we look at our own self. Uh, Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? Why do you look at the dust, right? The speck in your brother's eye when you have a log in your own eye. Uh, I think is the great theologian um, and philosopher Michael Jackson who said, I'm I must look at the man in the mirror, right? You must start inward first. And when God saves you, the first area that he's teaching you to, um, to live under the kingdom of God is this area of self why self-control because this present evil age the, the the times that we're living in right now it's marked with a lack of self-control have you ever noticed just everything must be binged right oh i binge watch netflix for four hours right or six hours or the whole day oh, i binge watch uh through spring break or binge uh, spending i just went crazy and nuts with a credit card right or uh, i went uh, binge um eating uh, we just went to the buffet and man we put that buffet out of business right <laughs> or binge sleeping i was like oh i didn't i didn't nap i hibernated like everything needs to be in excess like this inability to control ourselves 
And self-control, first of all, it's, it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is inside you and you're teachable to His grace, He teaches you to control yourself. And this implies this. It implies there's a battle between a divided self. Paul talks about that, right? Where he says, man, woe is me. The things I don't want to do, that's what I do. The things I, I do want to do, I don't do. Who can rescue me from this body of evil? Thanks be to the Lord Jesus Christ who rescues us. So it implies that our, our self, or our old self rather, it produces desires that we should not gratis, gratify or satisfy, but desires that we should instead what? Control. Controlling of the self. Self-control and how we spend our money. Self-control, you know, oftentimes we buy stuff uh, with money that we don't have to, um, to impress people that we don't even like. Self-control in the areas of anger. The Bible says, be angry, but do not sin. Self-control when it comes to our tongue. So, like, sometimes we can't help ourselves. Like, we want to speak out. We want to take things... We want to go move ahead of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit teaches us for self-control. Next is neighbor, which is outward, and how we relate to others, which is to def default to have gracious dealings with people. Verse 12, it teaches us to live upright lives. You know, God's grace, you guys, has come to save you and to teach you how to live with your neighbor or your coworker or your children, right? Or your aunties and uncles. It teaches you how to live with uprightness and grace. And our default should be gracious dealings. How are we going to relate to people? We're to ground our relationship with grace. You know why? Because grace begets grace. Uh, God um, rest his soul, but you know, Kobe Bryant, um, we all know him, Mamba mentality. And there was a time when he was at his peak. And you guys remember Jeremy Lin? He was an Asian American, Chinese American basketball player. And there was the whole insanity while he played for the New York Knicks. But uh, Jeremy Lin, he came out of nowhere and he started playing really well. And they call it Lin Sanity. And um, Jeremy Lin, he's a devout Christ follower. Anyway, so Jeremy Lin, uh, they interviewed him before the game. And they said, hey, you know, you know what Kobe Bryant said about you? He goes, what? And they showed him the tape. And Jeremy Lin, I don't care about no Jeremy Lin. I'm Kobe, I'm Kobe Bryant. I'm Black Mamba. I don't care about Jeremy Lin. Well, it so happened that this little Asian dude, uh, Jeremy Lin, outplayed Kobe Bryant. And I think they even won the game, if I'm not mistaken. And uh, during the press conference, post-game press conference, after the game, they asked Jeremy Lin, uh, so you outplayed Kobe Bryant. What do you have to say to Kobe Bryant? And at first, you know, it's a documentary. It's from his uh, documentary called Insanity. At first, he was going to say, Psh, I'm Jeremy Lin. Who's Kobe? Who's, who's Kobe Bryant? He was going to say that, but he had self-control and he wanted to deal graciously. He was like, well, and he was, his response was, well, Kobe's going to be Kobe and I'm Jeremy Lin. He's going to do his thing. I'm going to do his. 
I'm going to do my thing and I respect him. That is gracious dealing. Default to have gracious dealing with people. God's grace teaches you to be kind, to be patient, to be understanding, to be loving. And lastly, is in relationship to God, which is upward. Walk humbly before your God. Verse 12b says, it teaches us to live godly lives. That's what God's grace does. It teaches us how to live godly lives as it relates to God. Uh, Micah chapter 6 verse 8. This is one of my life verses. You know what man? Man, you know what is required of you? What does the Lord require of you? But to seek justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. God's grace teaches us that God is God and we are not. That we are but from dust we came and dust we shall return. That our very next breath depends on the goodness of God. And God's grace saves us and he teaches us like, hey, you're, you're nothing but man. You're nothing but dust, but God is God. Right? Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 verse 2, you are God in heaven, here I am on earth. So let my words be few. You see, there's a biblical tension between the closeness or the imminence of God and the transcendence of God, that God is holy, that He is separate. And the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And in our relationship with God, we are to walk humbly before Him. We are to plead and um, ask and request as His children. We don't demand, right? But we walk as His children. I'm going to uh, close it with a quote this morning from a church historian and a church theologian. His name is Yaroslav Pelikan, and this is what he says. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Huh? Let me repeat that again. If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. Let me unpack that for us a little bit. All of human history revolves around the, whether Jesus Christ, the God-man, rose from the dead. And Yaroslav Pelikan says, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, nothing else matters. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we are still dead in our sins. And the point of life then, if Jesus Christ doesn't matter, if, if from dust we came, dust we shall return, man, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to hashtag live my best life now. I'm going to just live my life to the fullest, right? If I'm just going to eat, drink, and be merry, I'm do whatever the heck I want because tomorrow we're just going to die and there's no afterlife and we're just going to go down annihilationism, that we're just going to annihilate and our body's just going to decompose and that's the end of life. And that's it. If Christ is not, isn't, is not risen, then nothing else matters. Then, and this is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 15, that life is meaningless apart from the resurrection. We're all going to die anyway. We're just going to hashtag YOLO, right? You, you only live once and just do whatever the heck you want. If Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. But he also says, if Christ is risen... Nothing else matters. 
If Jesus, in fact, rose from the dead, nothing else matters. Our entire life and our entire allegiance should be focused on Christ. The fear, the despair, the hopelessness of death. Death does not win, but God does. The pain, the suffering that we go through, it's only temporary. In this light momentary affliction, it does not really matter in comparison to eternity, which is forever. Listen, striving for material wealth and possessions, it doesn't matter why, because you can't take it with you anyways. If Christ is risen, man, nothing else matters. I'll spend all of my eternity with Him. The suffering, the setback, the problems, the betrayals, the slander, the things that I go through in life, the sickness, the cancer, the death around me. It doesn't matter because Christ is risen and one day He's going to make things right. If Christ is not risen, then we could do whatever we want. There's no ultimate end of justice. You know, Hitler could live his whole life murdering millions of Jews, and then all of a sudden he puts a gun to his head and kills himself, and that's it. There's no sense of justice. But Christ is risen, and nothing else matters. At the resurrection, everything will be made right. You know, Last month, we just got, my brother texted me and called me and said, Hey, John, uh, we just got the diagnosis, but um, 11 years ago, the doctor told us that um, mom, it was in her notes with Kaiser, 11 years ago, she was diagnosed with MSA, which is multiple system atrophy, where there's nerves in her brain that causes her to it causes systems to atrophy or not to work, like her equilibrium. Uh, she's barely 74 years old, and um, uh, her breathing, uh, uh, swallowing, she won't be able to eat. And then I Googled it real quick, and you know, life expectancy is six to 10 years with MSA and this was diagnosed 11 years ago and I was weeping and I was crying and I brought it to the Lord. And it just seemed so stinking unfair. You know, my mom, when my dad was out and he was married to the ministry, my mom shared Bible stories with us. She stayed home to be with us. She served the Lord. She's been a pastor's wife. She came out of poverty, went to a Christian school, got saved, walked in obedience to the Lord. And then her last remaining years here on earth, she gets MSA. And they told us like, hey, you guys better start talking about realistically about um, hospice care. And she's gonna come to a point where the MSA, she won't be able to eat and swallow her food. So you're gonna have to make a choice whether to put a, a feeding tube in her to, to keep her alive because she's not able to eat. I mean, my mom, she's healthy, strong, fiery Filipino mom, you know, and uh, she used to weigh like 130 pounds. Now she's down to 87 pounds. And she's coming to the end of her life and it just seemed like it doesn't make sense. How could this be? That this is the end of her story? That her body is just gonna wither away? 
that she's just basically going to starve to death. And that's it. But the resurrection, you guys, is that Christ is risen and nothing else matters. Nothing else matters. We could go through suffering. You could have an incurable terminal disease. God may allow you to have a brain aneurysm or a stroke. You get MSA, Parkinson's disease, and you could wither away. And it seems like this is the end of life. It has no meaning. It has no purpose. We're just going to die like this. But Christ has risen. Christ has appeared. He has come to save you. He has come to bring you wholeness, mind, body, spirit. He has come to bring wholeness in your relationships. He has come to bring wholeness in, in your life so that you won't be shackled and enslaved and mastered by sin. And Christ has come to, to show you how to live your life. He mentors you. He teaches you inside to have self-control in your relationship with others that you'd be deal graciously with them, but in your relationship with Him to walk humbly before God. And Christ has been risen from the dead. And no matter what problems, circumstance, trials, ad adversity that you go through, in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is the Christ. And so I encourage you this morning, if you have not given your life to him, surrender to the kingship of Jesus. He has risen and he is risen indeed. And he is king and he is Lord and he is God. And when he returns, he will make all things right. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for this Resurrection Sunday. Lord, we thank you, God, that because you have risen, nothing else matters. Oh, Lord Jesus, the pain that we go through, Lord, the hardships, it might seem like the biggest deal right now, but Lord, it's Manini, Lord. In light of eternity, in light of your resurrection, in light of our future bodily resurrection, Lord, it means nothing. So Father, I pray right now, Lord God, that you would give strength to your people. I pray, Lord, for those who have not surrendered their lives to you, that they would follow to them, they would repent, that they would confess and receive you as Lord, that they would believe the gospel of Jesus Christ and have everlasting life with you. We thank you, Lord, because you are the resurrection and the life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen, amen. All right, you guys, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you peace. Go with God. God will go with you. Have an amazing Easter Sunday. We love you guys. Have an amazing week.